This is episode seven of Dialogue Heritage, a podcast series exploring the history of dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, through the lens of LDS history, American history, and academic history. Each episode, we discuss a five-year period of the journal's history from the founding in 1966 until today. This week, we're discussing 1995 to 1999. Hello, this is Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, here with Andy Pitcher-Davis, art editor of Dialogue. Taylor, thank you for having me again. It's always such a joy to be with you. And this part of the journal is so amazing and complex, and I'm, I am eager to dive in. Me too. Andy, I realized in preparing this particular episode that in any given five-year period, we're talking about approximately 3,500 to 4,000 pages of content produced in the journal. That was really remarkable to me and explains why it takes so much work as we prepare for these. I also want to acknowledge that we've reached the limit of the Devery Anderson uh, articles of the four-part series that he had put together surveying the history of dialogue up until 1992. So as a result, sometimes we have fewer anecdotes just because we don't have the research that he had done to kind of supplement the textual uh, history of the journal itself. Well, and I just have to mention that um, this is a vast amount of content, and I thank you for shortening our journal down just a little bit from the 350 pages to what we have because we just are providing really amazing content right now. It is pretty remarkable how much stuff they were generating during this time period. Um, this, edit, this episode continues the editorship of Martha Sontag Bradley and Alan Dale Roberts that we began in episode six. And in 1999, we transitioned to Neil and Rebecca Chandler, who moved the journal to their home in Shaker Heights, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. Neil was a writer and director of the creative writing program at Cleveland State, and Rebecca was an English teacher. And so the journal once again leaves Utah. What else is going on in the world? Well, I want to just set the stage a little bit. We are in the midst of the Clinton presidency and uh, in the midst of, of course, his sex scandal and impeachment. The church hits 10 million members during this period. Wow. Hinckley becomes president of the church and in 1997 is the sesquicentennial, 150 years since the pioneers and the beginning of Trek, the pioneer LDS, the LDS pioneer reenactments. <laughs> you know, that's special to me. You know, I walked every step of that Mormon wagon. Just briefly trail. tell that story because I, I well, have heard this from you before, but uh, it's I know, and thank you for, I mean, my father was a little bit different and he wanted to walk across the Mormon wagon train. He said something very interesting. I've been investigating it. He proposed, he proposed to the brethren. He'd walked in 96 and then, uh, in 97, he said, we can do this, but we need the support of the church. And the church said, no, it's too dangerous. And he said, I'm just going to go do it anyway. Well, he started off in, in of course, in winter quarters. And we walked across Nebraska. And the only way to stay warm in Nebraska is to leave Nebraska. It would rain the whole time. By the time we got to, by the time we got to Casper, Wyoming, uh, Thomas S. Monson came out and he visited us and he said something very important. He was thrilled to be there. He wanted to talk about his own Condi uh, uh, relatives who, who rescued the William Martin Handcart Company. And he said, you know, this has been very great propaganda for the church. It's been great, not it's been great publicity for the church. It's been good. It's been good for the church. And it was not church sponsored, which might be the secret. And what happened, I think, in 1997 at that point is all things did have to become church sponsored and we're launching into an era where there were there where these individual initiatives like my father did and others maybe not have they weren't as tolerated and i think that the church is moving to a place where it did need more control that is fascinating and i i I had heard that your father was involved in that, but I don't think I knew all of the details. And I also oh. don't know if I knew that you personally had walked the entire trail in 1997. Not, not only that, we walked to Canada the next year. I mean, I walked <laughs> into the valley on a Amish-made Conestoga wagon. There are documentaries made about this. I mean, the trek, I, I still say, 
that I wear Trek Couture clothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it made it made a difference. And I'll tell you why. Because in 1997, a lot of what was going on in pop culture when Mormonism was to do a lot of um, work in other countries and with other cultures. And I said, you know, my parents and my father is walking across the plains. I have a culture. And this is really where I fell in love with Mormonism. I could wear eight yards of, of homespun and an apron and walk 18 miles a day. And we did it. We lived authentically. We cooked authentically. We, we rode, I mean, the horses, all of it. It was really quite amazing. But it's made, it, it was the thing that really fortified me to really be very devoted to this faith and to this history. Mm. So speaking of official enac- or official uh, sponsored things, one of the other fascinating things that occurred to me during this period was that in 1998, the year after all of this, the church finally launches its own website, which was quite late relative to other major organizations. And as I discovered from reading the letters to the editor during this time period, there was all of this anxiety in the church about the internet in the mid-1990s. Now, I was just going off to college during this period. I was on my mission for a part of it. So I kind of remember a little of it. But it was because it became clear that pornography was one of the main products of the internet that church leaders were actually warning people to stay away from the internet altogether for a long time. And I had forgotten about all of that and the sort of funny contradictions that were then posed when the church finally got its own website, which then seemed to imply that the the internet was safe enough, at least for the church to have a presence there. But it did not for years. No, and not just a presence. I mean, it laid hold on the internet, didn't it? It's become an internet church in in so many, of course, certainly today, right? Yeah. So it was just this, these, this was a time period where we're getting more and more into the periods of which you and I have lived through and can remember. And I know. I, and so that's, that's kind of an interesting, you know, um, piece to kind of look at, look back at this as history, but it's like, these were our own stories in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of backstory, like what's interesting to me is in 1996, we're talking about 95, 90, 94, 96. There are scholars that are ne- that were then now our age mm-hmm. who were who were put into exile, mm. and I, a little bit. Can we mention that? Yeah, yeah, that that helps to set the stage for what's going on with kind of following up on the conflicts that we discussed in the early '90s in our last episode. So, yeah, talk talk a little bit about that. Well, there's several, and and you 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 know we can talk about this. We're all in aftershock. I mean, we had this action happen that we discussed in our last podcast about a mass kind of um, it's not a mass excommunication, but it was it was a serious sort of action from the church against scholarship. And I was able to talk to we have some we have one essay by Michael Quinn that's very important and and poignant. And I was able to speak to somebody else who was part of this this. Let me call it a discipline. Is that a good word? Sure. And and it was David Knowlton, who was not excommunicated, actually, but he was um, he was censored and fired from BYU for his work. And he was kind of on the fringes of this. I don't think he was officially fired from BYU. Just to double check that, I think he oh, left right. to go to UVU, but not he he was. I don't believe he was fired. Just for the no, that's great, and that's. Yeah. That's really good information. That's really good information. And David, what was interesting on my own perspective was I was expecting a bunch of sort of um, warriors, like some really fiery people. And David is this very kind, gentle soul who reads poetry. And he said a couple of things that were really important. He said that the stigma of being censored and being sort of put into exile, and that was his word. Exile was his word was huge. He talked about there was an ecclesiastical, uh, that the ecclesiastical authorities, including Packard and the administration, really wanted to come down on those as, and maybe you just mentioned that Hinckley had just come in to, to being prophet at the time, right? Yeah. And which, which is always, there's action that happens when we have a turnover that. And he said, he told me this, he said, you know, Andy, it was harder not to be excommunicated and it cost me my career because of the sense that he had to like leave the scholarship he had done. He works quite a bit in central, central, mostly South American literature and poetry. 
he found a lot of solace, to tell you the truth, in the in the words of those of from Chile and also in Peru who had been in exile and political exile. He was like, this is where I found my poetry. So I think that's quite a, kind of important. And what happens at just straight away in this first issue of, uh, well, maybe it is spring, let's see what it is, it's summer 1995. The first thing that happens is we find a place, no, it's actually spring 95. We find a place for somebody who was excommunicated in that action by Michael Quinn and spiring that is happening at BYU. So dialogue becomes a place where the exiles are, are welcome. Yeah, that's a really good point. And as we, uh, we didn't, you and I discussed this offline, but as we were kind of going into this period, we weren't quite sure what to expect. It was a rocky era for the journal yeah. in the wake of the September 6th, in the wake of the controversies going on at BYU, BYU had sort of unofficially banned uh, Latter-day, uh, the, the professors from contributing to Sunstone and Dialogue. Just a, a, a note here from Martha yes. Bradley Sontag here, where she describes all the things that they went through during their five-year, uh, uh, actually, I think they were ultimately there for six years, but during their tenure as journal editors, the debate over academic freedom at Brigham Young University the excommunications of the September 6th, the LDS Church's condemnation of participation in the Sunstone Symposium, or even the discouragement of BYU faculty members felt from publishing uh, felt from publishing in either Sunstone or Dialogue created a sort of tension in Mormon studies that was slow to dissipate. And I like that a sort of tension in Mormon studies that really undersells <laughs> just how bad it was. <laughs> um, well... And I'm just going to say this. I'll put this out there. I don't know if it's fair or not fair, but that tension still exists. And I want to acknowledge that. Well, and it was continuing. So the September 6th are a famous example, but you've got all of these people who were censured but not excommunicated like Knowlton and others. We also have further excommunications like Janice Allred in 1995 yes. and her sister Margaret Toscano in the year 2000. And so these were ongoing. Wow. Yeah. I did not know they were sisters, FYI. Oh, yeah. It's a great, great little well, story there. Yeah. And I have in my summer 1995 issue, the first Freedom and Grace Rethinking Theocracy from Janice Allred. So the, the journal continues to hold a place for those who are in exile. And it kind of gets the reputation uh, in part sort of spilling over from dial from Sunstone and the ban that was put on Sunstone. It kind of sometimes, and of course it itself had published a number of controversial, the journal Dialogue had published a number of controversial articles, but it kind of um, becomes known as a kind of a little bit of a more of a hostile uh, place. And uh, so there's this fascinating line then by, um, by Alan Roberts, who's describing it in, in retrospect. And he says, one issue that we addressed early on was if dialogue should be mainly an interpreter or reflector of church life and culture, or if it should, if it should serve a larger role in trying to improve Mormon experience by providing constructive criticism and advocating progressive change. And it's that sort of identity crisis that they're dealing with. It's like, do we reflect LDS culture or are we the quote unquote loyal opposition that earlier dialogue editors had imagined themselves as being that they're try trying to navigate a little bit. And that's oh, often where these many well, progressives find themselves is both attracted to and, and, um, and wanting to be critical of at the same time. Well, and I'm just going to jump in because there's an entire, it, there's another layer entirely and I'm looking from the 1995 summer issue. We're talking about Sam Taylor, who grew up a child of polygamy. I think that um, Ari Christmas was a, was a grandchild of polygamy. And can I read one quick poem about polygamy? Because they're dealing not just with progressive nature of this heresy. They're dealing with a past of deep polygamy. Can I just read this quick poem? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Serial polygamy. One of his had just spilled some Cheerios and one of hers was griping over the grape nuts. He was about to holler for his new wife when the name of one of his exes rose up and it caught in his throat. He almost choked on the notion that nothing is really over, that maybe they were all going to have to live together unhappily forever after because God had found this crazy way to bend the rules 
Meanwhile, there was a small mess to attend to and a complainer to console, a new life number three to get on with in a life that just kept unraveling but refused to come to an end. So to deal with burning the, the candle at both ends, right, of both polygamy as well as progressiveness is quite remarkable. They had a lot on their plates during this time period and a very, yes. you know, small needle to thread, it felt like. Um, but it didn't seem to turn them down. Again, going into this issue, I wasn't quite sure what to, or to this time period, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. It's closer, as we've mentioned, to our own lives. And, um, but I was actually pretty surprised at the high quality and consistency that the journal managed to produce despite Absolutely. losing a huge number of potential contributors among BYU faculty and, and, uh, and just even maybe some subscribers who thought that the journal was a little bit too out there. Um, so I found it all pretty, uh, a pretty interesting, um, time period. One of the issues that we've mentioned already is that uh, the BYU professors who weren't able to publish in, in dialogue, or at least were being discouraged, though I have to say I was surprised as I was going through to see how many BYU professors seemed to just ignore that advice because there were a lot of them that were still publishing Absolutely. in dialogue. It was never I really uh, fully um, uh, followed here. Um, and uh, there were a number of dust-ups then uh, that started in the early 1990s between BYU professors and administrators and some church authorities. Most notable were Cecilia Conchar-Farr and David Knowlton, yes. who we've mentioned. Um, this, of, this often meant that during Michael this— Quinn. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, yeah. Michael Quinn, of course, over and over absolutely, again. Absolutely, absolutely. So this often meant that in the in Dialogues pages, we see a number of histories of BYU that are attempting to trace back uh, how these sort of conflicts over academic freedom came about, uh, and many of them go back to the uh, to the uh, Ernst Wilkinson time period. I want to also note, as we're discussing these articles, that Brian Waterman and Brian Cagle's The Lord's University, Freedom and Authority at BYU, published in 1998 by Signature Books, is another fascinating history that really encapsulates a lot of the things that had led to um, the ultimately the censure of BYU by the American Academy of University Professors in 1998, wow. uh, which it still is under, is worth noting, 20, oh, 20 plus years later. Um, so what exactly had happened here? Well, um, let's see. Let me let me see where I, where to start the story. There's so many places. Let me start with Brian Waterman's article, Ernst Wilkinson and the Transformation of BYU's Honor Code, 1965 to 1971, which lays out a little bit of the story here. Uh, uh, but the things that had kind of led up to this and led up to a... a a higher scrutiny of BYU professors than had been before was Wilkinson's presidency. And this comes to a head in many ways in the 1990s with these various conflicts with professors. Um, there, uh, the most famous one is actually Gail Houston, who was an English professor yeah. who was denied tenure by, by the English department, not on the basis of her scholarship, but because she had publicly endorsed praying to Heavenly Mother, which was oh in contradiction to then Elder Hinckley's 1991 teaching that such a practice was forbidden. So her teachings were in direct contradiction to uh, to uh, Hinckley. And again, Conchar Farr was also in the English department. The English department had a number of people that were um, coming into conflict with uh, church authorities on some of these issues. Exactly. And you, you have to remember that the English department is where Gene England is, right? This is the source of our journal. Yeah. <laughs> he is mentoring. He is mentoring these voices as subtle as he was through this time. He is mentoring this these voices. So fascinatingly, in spring of 1999, so a year after the AAUP had censured BYU, um, Paul M. Rose does a study, well, it publishes his study, The Zion University Reverie, a quantitative assessment of BYU's academic climate which surveyed the faculty on academic freedom issues. And the results to me were fascinating because they showed two things that were totally contradictory among the faculty. 
Um, the first was that the huge, huge majorities of BYU faculty did not see academic freedom issues as a problem at BYU. That is, uh, they did not believe that there were any problems, which means that the faculty and the AAUP who had censured BYU over frac over freedom, uh, academic freedom issues, those that was a minority view, at least among the BYU faculty. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. What percentage of BYU faculty that year were Mormon white men? Um, huge numbers of the survey, 80% of the survey respondents okay. were men. Only 20% were women. And there's another really interesting difference that among the men who responded to the survey, fewer believed that there were any problems. Among the women who responded to the survey, there were differences. Still, a huge majority of women believe that it wasn't a problem. The course, academic freedom, but uh, more believe than it was than than their male counterparts, which was uh, which was pretty interesting. Um, now, but the second thing that I found fascinating is that the same huge majorities of respondents also said that they either agreed or strongly agreed that BYU professors should not conduct research that calls into question church or university procedures. So what does that mean? <laughs> that means that they, on the one hand, <laughs> say that there is no problem with academic freedom. On the other hand, tons of them don't believe in academic freedom. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Is that the same on your own university? Can I just ask that? I mean, maybe that's egregious, but I would like to ask that. If, that, if it's the same at my university? Yes. Oh, well, my university isn't run by a church, so there's no, uh, there's no um, concerns about academic freedom from a from, from the church perspective, obviously. Right? I think that's valid for those that are listening to understand that that's the norm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the other BYU-related articles that I had never heard of before this, and I didn't really know the author, who he, he is going to come up a couple of times in our episode here, Brigham D. Madsen, The Making of a mm -hmm. BYU Professor, who uh, tells the story of how he became a professor at BYU after World War II, the anxiety that he had about teaching at a church school. He eventually leaves BYU and then ends up uh, going back to uh, going to be a professor again at Utah State University. But this was one of the funniest articles I had ever read. I loved it so, so much. And so I have like 40 which, pages which, of quotes here, but yeah. Which which episode, which issue are you referring to? You know, to? It's, I think, I want to say it's in 96, but I'd have to go back to my notes. I, I forgot okay. to write it down on my, on my notes here. But he has all of these great stories and gossip and honesty about BYU, his conflicts <laughs> with Wilkinson, what it was like to be an academic in the church 70 years ago, or frankly, even just an academic. You know, again, I, I look at this from my own career and looking at like, what are the crazy things that they were doing back then and what it was like to be an academic back then. But um, he tells all of these just juicy, juicy details. And um, I want to just say a couple of things about it. So I'll read a few quotes here from it. I love it. One is, I was forced to get up at 3 a.m. each morning, repair to my office and write feverishly until classes started. For my first three years at BYU, and until a few faculty, until a few new faculty members were appointed, I taught a two-quarter survey in English history, as well as a third quarter of English constitutional history, a two-quarter survey in Latin American history with a third quarter devoted to the history of Mexico, a two-quarter survey course in U.S. history plus courses in the history of the American West, American historians, and a graduate seminar. Now, to people who aren't wow. academics, that is a crazy schedule, a huge amount of things. He was getting up at it 3 a.m. in part because he was also working um, as a carpenter during this whole time while he's also a young professor because BYU yeah. didn't pay well enough. And um, and what do, you, what do you bet he had seven children? <laughs> he, may, he may have had a large family, certainly a young family. This is a time period in broader American culture when universities are booming. The period right after World War II, everybody's coming back from the GI uh, from the war. They're on the GI Bill. Everybody get basically got free education, and so they're going to school like crazy. And um, so faculty are being hired like crazy. So BYU, I think, doubles or triples during this the first fifteen years after World War II, from a student body of five thousand to fifteen thousand, I think, by by the end of that that period. Um, so there's huge growth, tons of new professors, tons of new, uh, tons of things that are going on, new building uh, uh, projects that are going up. 
And um, at the same time, they weren't paying faculty very well. Now, today, BYU faculty are paid relatively well, especially relative to many other faculty at other universities. But back then, they they were not. And um, he couldn't get a raise from Wilkinson. (laughs) So that's one of the things he was upset about. Wilkinson had his own agenda, yeah. you know, quite a bit. But and and that brings us back to a couple of things. But but before we leave 1995, I just want to just mention the Michael Quinn essay, "The Male Male Intimacy Among 19th Century Mormons." We'll, we'll get to we'll get we'll definitely okay. get to that. One. There are okay. a few more things I'll in wait. this article. I gotta tell. I gotta tell. Okay, okay. Good. no, I'll wait. I'll because wait. among the among the things that were going on is that Wilkinson is trying to grow BYU, and so he's sending BYU professors out with general authorities to speak about BYU, how great it is, and to get students uh, to come to BYU and to sort of um, lean on the fact that it's a church-authorized school, that they're there with the apostles and so on. Um, That kind of backfires because all the LDS professors at Southern Utah University and Utah State are like, well, why are you trying to steal our students, you know? And so then they have to just, uh, they send the BYU professors out to just talk about how great higher education is in general and be implicit about the fact that they should try to get those students to come to uh, BYU. But on one of these trips, he tells all these great stories of all the general authorities that he went out with and all the, again, he's gossiping about them because he's not a member of the church at the time, so he can uh, tell these stories. But he says, President Joseph Fielding Smith rode with me to Richmond, Cache County, Utah. It was a delightful weekend for me. I found him to be a pleasant companion with a strong Puritan bent. At the morning session of state conference, he angered the congregation by announcing that he wanted them to go home and read a certain passage in the Bible, but then added, you've probably never read your Bibles. Then he referred to a section of the Book of Mormon with the observation, a lot of you probably don't even own a copy of the book. Finally, he (laughs) said, I see you have a baseball diamond just across the street from this chapel, and if I weren't here, most of you would be over there watching a baseball game instead of being in church. After the meeting, the crowd just turned their backs on him and walked out. (laughs) My goodness. Yeah. So I love that story. I don't know why, but it's just great. Well, and I've always said if I wrote, uh, my next CD will be called uh, Flies in My Starter and Dust on the Bible. So maybe I am in that that (laughs) ilk. So what's next? A couple more BYU stories because there was so much BYU stuff here. There's so much BYU. Um, I mean... So we can't. I'll, I'll be quick about it. But Paul Richards writes an article, Satan's Foot in the Door, Democrats at BYU, that is responding to a Provo Daily Herald article originally from 1992 <laughs> that says BYU should clean house. There are thousands of, quote, liberal arts colleges around to take the malcontents at BYU. Before Satan gets both feet in the door at BYU, let those on the Lord's side stand up and be counted so that the truth can prevail. And so it's then he goes out. So Richards then goes out to talk to a bunch of Mormon Democrats. And it turns out, he says, I found both of them and many, many more. And so he interviews a bunch of BYU Democrats. But basically, they were all afraid to say that they were Democrats at BYU And, uh, and, and they cite among other reasons, academic freedom issues, rank advancement, and so on, all kinds of problems about coming out. A few did go on record as administrators who were Democrats. But again, remember, this is a time when Republicans and Democrats, we don't remember it as much now because the, the Democrats and Republicans are such at each other's throats today, but they definitely were during the Clinton presidency too. He had been impeached, right? Uh, the sex scandal issues, you've got the rise of the sort of pre-Tea Party uh, kind of uh, uh, hardcore Republicans who are really dogmatic about things. And so there was just a ton of tension uh, going on during this time period. And um, BYU was sometimes getting caught up in all of it. Uh, I think the, yeah. the main BYU articles, there was probably a couple more, but there was a ton, there were a ton, there were like six articles on BYU-related topics. Absolutely. And the church extends itself into BYU. And that's what we need to recognize. It's not that BYU is an extension into the church. It's that the church extends itself into the education of these, what, 45,000 people? Yeah. Now, today. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, exactly. Yeah. It's huge. So let's move to Quinn. You had mentioned the male male intimacy among 19th century Mormons. There's, of course, I mean, and this is really interesting, and it pops up later in letters to the editor, which are kind of rich. I think the letters to the editor later are even better. 
than the Michael Quinn. And he's already at this point, uh, you can, you can correct me on this because I'm often wrong. And my head is like in the clouds. Was he already excommunicated by 1990? He was in the September 6th. So yes. Yes. So he goes ahead and publishes this male, male intimacy among 19th century Mormons, a case study. And it's not received well among our readers, is it? No, and this is a part of, I, I don't know if it's specifically a chapter or a summary of the chapters of his book, Same Sex Intimacy Among 19th Century Mormons, a case study or, or an American example or something like that, which was published in uh, the following year, 1996. So uh, it's a part of his broader research agenda, and which also was panned among many LDS readers for uh, what they accused, and it was similar accusations that he had received from some of his earlier work, going beyond the evidence, uh, sort of making some assumptions about things that were maybe tenuous readings of the, uh, uh, of the situation. And so, yeah, it kind of didn't, didn't go over well. No, it didn't. And he speaks to somebody specific. We'll, we'll get to in the letters to the editor. There's one other, it, there's one other article in this. And I mean, that's, uh, there's one other article in this winter 95 issue that I think is worth p- picking up. And is the very, very, very first scholarly essay by uh, our own Michael Austin, The Function of Mormon Literary Criticism at Present Time. And it starts with something quite funny about uh, a a Jewish rabbi. But anyway, I just want to say this is the beginning of of Mormon scholar Michael Austin's career as well, which was less, which was less inflammatory as Michael Quinn's, (laughs) but but probably has more staying power. While we're on homosexuality, I do think that it's yes. worth noting that we're moving into a new phase of LDS discussions about homosexuality, and the journal really reflects that. Up until now, we've been dealing with mostly personal voices and narratives, uh, uh, but now we're starting to get discussions of psychology, history with Quinn, and even theology uh, dealing with same-sex relationships. So uh, I want to note a couple of interesting book reviews because they were quite interesting. One is that there's continued discussion of Peculiar People, which was published in 1994, I believe. And we had, mm-hmm. uh, we had book reviews in 1994 that are showing up then in the letters to the editor, editor in fall 1995 and winter 1995. Now, it is unusual to have letters to the editor in multiple issues responding to book reviews. But uh, issues of, around homosexuality were attracting that attention, including another book review, Mary Beth Rain's review of Aaron Eldridge, no. who is – go, go ahead. I have it right here because Mary Beth I know well. And, and she – there again, here again, we have one editor, one – I mean, what the, – the truth, the fiber of our faith is within these letters to the editor, and I truly believe that. And people responding to them really speak out against Michael Quinn's article, but they speak out against a lot of things. And they speak out against Mary Beth. And they just say her, her, her review of Born That Way argues convincingly that the book blinds emphasis on the surety that sexual orientation can be changed is simplistic and damaging. Of course, we know that it is now. She goes on, you know, and it's somebody, Tom Matthews, who talks about at the end, he says, I must conclude to search for a way to reconcile my sexual orientation with my spiritual and moral heritage. So we both feel for Mary Beth, who's advancing the cause, as well as this Tom Matthews from my own Orem, Utah, where I live, who is saying, look, I have to reconcile this. All I have is Mary Beth Rains. So I, and my heart is broken over this. You know that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're seeing these debates about reparative therapy happening really for the first time in, uh, they had happened a little bit in 1993, but in, in the pages of dialogue over the course of the late nineties, we're seeing a lot of people start to push back against the church's teachings and the sort of official policies that the church had pursued on this issue. Um, and these book reviews, and then the responses to the book reviews is one of those places that we see them. There's another article that I thought was really interesting that comes out of this time period, which is Gary which one? M. Watts' Dialogue, uh, sorry, Fall 1998, The Logical Next Step, Affirming Same-Sex Relationships. Yes. I had never heard of this article, and I'm embarrassed about that because this is the area that I study. <laughs> 
Um, and so I was a little bit uh, taken taken aback that there was an article that was arguing for something quite bold back then. He recommends that monogamous, long-term, same-sex relationships be honored and affirmed in the church, but he doesn't go so far as to say that they should be open to temple ordinances or recommends. Uh, but he does say, listen, we could get rid of all of this anxiety if the church just says same-sex relationships should be honored and 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 uh, and promoted in the church. And he says that bitter fruit is unlikely to go away and will continue to plague the church until some accommodation is made. So we have people back in the 1990s arguing that the church should affirm same-sex relationships, not fully, not all the way through the through the temple, but uh, but really quite bold for uh, for that time period. Taylor, let me ask you in your professional opinion, because you've just written this book, which is really well-received. And can I just congratulate oh, you? Thank you. Sure. No, I'm, I want to, because really it's a kind of amazing. Do you think that the church is receiving um, homosexuality and the rights of our LGBTQIA brothers and sisters and, and, uh, non even like are they are we receiving it any better? Well, relative to well, 1998, yes. Okay, good. But but um, I think that what uh, Gary M. Watts's article points to, and and what I think is still the issue, is that accommodations can only go so far if they stop short of really of, of affirming relationships. That's what this is all about. Right. That's not true. And so, uh, so that's why I was a little bit surprised, you know, cause we're not, we're not just here in the realm of like, we need to be nicer and more understanding. Towards no, 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 no. He's saying, no, no, no. We need to actually have their relationships be honored and valued. And, right. Yeah. Which leads LGBTQIA people into mixed orientation marriages yeah. sometimes, yeah. which are difficult. Yeah. Anyway. So there's a couple other issues that come up during this, this time. It's, there's two. There's Armand M Mouse. Is it Mouse or Moose? Mouse. Mouse. Thank you. His essay about the commoditization and the and the corporatization of the church. Mm. What are we doing? Um, that's an important essay that talks about: Are we moving from a clanism into sort of are we a hierarchy of a corporation? He does an entire issue. He he uh, he is the guest editor of an entire issue. The other one I think is really important is Cecilia Farr's essay about feminism and and what got her into the, to a little bit of hot water occasionally. Yeah. So so I know that homosexuality is always the hot button issue, but there's other things going at play as well. Let's do feminism, and then I want to go back to that Moss issue because it, there was something really really fascinating going on there, but. There was less on feminism than I expected during this era. We've got the Conchar Far yeah. dancing through the doctrine, observations on religion and feminism. Uh, in fall 1995, she had run into troubles at BYU as part of the 1993 crackdown on professors. And here she wants to desecularize feminism and find space for feminist critique of religion from inside positions of faith. And so she's really advocating for a religious feminism, one which doesn't satisfy the non uh, the anti-feminist religious groups and doesn't satisfy the anti-religious feminist groups, and it's holding on to that middle position that so many people have found really difficult to navigate. Um, and so it's it's a kind of a, a classic, really a, not kind of it is a classic article. It is. It out. is. Yeah. And is this after her excommunication? I don't know if she's excommunicated. I don't know enough about, I know some of the, the controversies either. around BYU in 1993, and I but I don't know if she's excommunicated or if she left or, or what, but she leaves BYU you know, um, eventually and on not great terms, obviously. But, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know the, the further, further, further. In, in this essay, she does two things that are profound to me as a Mormon feminist. And one she talks about the fact that she really does find meaning in her life and meaning in her work from within the Mormon feminists of the past, you know, and not just those recently in the suffragettes and others. She finds meaning within her own mother who joins the church from Catholicism and she is dyed in the wool and she believes in her church. The other thing she does is she really gives a lot of credit to those like Sonia Johnson and Margaret Triscano and Janice Allred. She she really pays homage to those who pay, who went before her. 
which I really want to acknowledge and honor. It's sometimes difficult for us as feminists to understand and get a grasp around the record that went before us because so much of it was erased. But Cecilia goes to her very, like she goes to the end of herself to say, I am here for my faith. I'm here for the women who went before me, even though I'm adopted into this culture. And these are the women who went first. These are the ones who went first. I think if, if it went, if it was a difficult, and she says over and over again that she is an ardent feminist, which explains her short tenure of BYU. But before she left, she worked her absolute hardest to bring in the sisters that went before her into the fold. And I really respect that. I just need to acknowledge that. It's a, it's a great article for laying out that tension and one which is unresolved today. And uh, so I'm glad that you Absolutely. found that one too. And it's probably in this period, the most significant article on feminist issues, because I, I really couldn't find much else that was uh, kind of um, continuing on that topic, despite that it was one of the big issues of the, of the day. Um, yeah. So, well, and it pops up again uh, several years later, and I think those who come back around to it in maybe like Kate Kelly's and the Lisa Butterworths yeah. and others don't know their past yeah. because it was not supported. It was just not supported. Well, and it's it's notable, you know, we have this in this issue, in this episode in 1995, but it was just in 1994 that all of those amazing feminist articles were published. You know, so it was a part of the time period of the Absolutely. early 90s, maybe more than the late 90s, where we just don't see these, those people publishing on those issues as much, perhaps because people kept getting in trouble over them, you know, so, yes. yeah. So the Moss issue you Moss, you bring up, yes. this is spring 1996. He guest edits a special issue, Mormons and Mormonism in the 21st century, prospects oh, and, and issues. I'm just going to say he does not mess. There's not yeah. even, there's not even letters to the editor. <laughs> yeah. It's 250 it's pages. Yes. Yeah. It's a big issue. And it's all of the top sociologists in the church, Moss, Shepard and Shepard, uh, Deco, Sandberg, David Knowlton. And, and it also has an international perspective, all of these uh, international yes. scholars who are writing on it. And, um, so it's, it's worth reading. And I also just had to laugh too, because of course it's published in 1996. So when they get to 1999, they don't have a Mormons in the 21st century because it had already been done three years earlier. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Okay. So he, he steals that from them. But here's, what's fascinating about this that I had to, that I was really struck by going back to, we mentioned that the church had just hit 10 million members. And you may wow. recall that this was a big deal. Um, we sort of had been living in the shadow of these predictions that had come out in the 1980s that we were going to have as many as 200 million people in the church by 2080, you know. Um, and so church growth was considered really to be exponential during this time period. Yes. Um, but, but, uh, you know, so, so there's an, and there's an article in here, uh, that says, um, in the first article presented here, uh, they predicted what church growth would look like in the year 2020. That's yes. our year, that, right? That, that was a while ago though. Wasn't, didn't, wasn't that in the sixties that they said, or was this in the nineties? This 90s? is the article in the, uh, in the 1996 issue. Got yeah. It. So, yeah, what they so Ben Benyon and Larry Young are uh, writing yes. this article and they say in 2020, what they think church growth is going to look like. And of course there's qualified blah, 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 blah. Right. But they estimate the worldwide church membership would be 35 million in 2020. <laughs> And I'm sure they planned accordingly. In <laughs> that was, uh, you know, according to the analysis, I remember we were at 10 million in the mid 1990s. We had just hit that threshold, right? And uh, so they expected that because church membership had tripled in the past 25 years, that it was going to triple again in the next 25 years. However, it didn't triple. It didn't no. even double. We're not even at 20 million yet. Well, I wonder, do you know what the... The, the population that the, the church uh, membership is. At I, right I now. believe that as of now, we're in the 16 millions still. Yeah. And we are, of course, not growing. Right. So, um, you know, it, it just shows like the optimism and the enthusiasm 
25 years ago about where we were going to be is not at all. And now we're having these big issues of like, are we going to be growing at all? (laughs) Right. Sure. But let me toss something out in this because there's something that really struck me in this. Because I I absolutely feel like this essay is a watermark in Mormonism. And less than our growth, less than our our like less than than what is really um, quantifying about Mormonism in our in our membership, he he mentions there is a shift to where we are now making sure that we are making that we are marketing religion as a commodity. And that is super important. He marks, I believe, the shift between when we are clans, when we do favors for our brothers and sisters, when we are the kid of some GA, into when have we become the corporation. And maybe it was driven so they could take care of that 35 million people or whatever, but he marks it well with this issue. I mean, I, I, I had to really do a deep dive in this issue because it was a lot of statistics, a lot of numbers. David Dalton talks about the diversity that's happening within Latin America, of course, and I had served a mission with those who spoke Spanish, so I understood that. But what, what he does, what Armand Moss does, is he just really talks about re- the religion industry. And that is utterly significant. At this point in time, it comes becomes more apparent, I believe, in 2010, 2012, after the I am a Mormon campaign. But but that commoditization of spirituality is something that we cannot overlook. Yeah, the, he, he offers a whole economic theory of religion that's driving his research during this time period. And of course, driving the book that he had recently published too, The Angel and the Beehive, one of the most important uh, uh, studies of Mormonism still to this day, more than 25 years later after its initial publication. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, class, you know, if you're interested in these issues, these are really indispensable articles to go back to. Okay, are we going to jump ahead to 96? Uh, well, I was going to talk about the student issue in 97, oh. but go, what have you got for 96? Go for it. I want to tell the story that is a 1996 issue that is, of course, art-related because I'm an artist and a photographer, and it's significant. It's Gisbert Blossard and someone also named Isaac Russell. And what Gisbert Blossard does, he's, a, he's an immigrant. He's 21 years old in 1911. He's figured out to be an amazing photographer because Salt Lake at the time, you need to know that Mormonism and photography is, is, is an, it, there's an amazing alliance. And in the early years, this is the same year as uh, uh, George Edward Anderson and the Savages and quite a few people. What happens is he sneaks in. He makes friends with the gardener in, it, of, the, of the Salt Lake Temple. And he sneaks in and he spends the night, several nights, he spends almost two months making 94 images of the interior of the temple in 1911. Now, now what happens is super significant. He thinks, he tries to peddle them and somebody said, oh, this other Russell guy is like, oh, we can, we can sell them to the Tribune or we can make a million dollars with it. He said hundreds of thousands of dollars. And of course, those that are really connected to the Mormon church don't really want to see them. And John Taylor has a very interesting response. It's by, it's mid August that, uh, that Blossard shows these, sends these images off to the, both the Salt Lake Tribune, as well as to John Taylor. And the first thing that John Taylor does by September is he gets in touch with Charles Savage, which is one of the most amazing early Mormon photographers ever. And James, Talmadge. And he says, we're going to go in and they just done a cleaning of the temple and 600 people had walked through. And they said, we are going to make the book, the house of the Lord. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because yes, is it is fraught with blackmail and a lot of intrigue? No. What happens is technology is an advancing, right? Just like the internet was advancing and the church is slow to respond to technology and it takes somebody, an outlier to push the church, but the first thing the church does is crank out a book that is still in circulation by James Talmadge about the house of the Lord and the images of the of the Salt Lake Temple. I mean, this essay is super interesting to me, and thank you for letting me just share it. But that's 
the thing as technology advances, so does our religion. And that's what I really see as being the fingerprint of this essay. I think that this issue around the temple too, because the same thing happened with LDS garments, there were publications that were circulating and then they finally, then the church finally printed pictures of them, you know? So we've seen this story before and it's fascinating to know that it's been going on for a hundred years plus. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, so we can two, move on. two other uh, issues that I thought uh, worth mentioning or two other topics that, that are worth mentioning. If you've got others, we, I'm happy to come to those. One is the spring 1997 student issue. I love it edited by Brian Waterman and Joanna Brooks. Uh, and it has essays from Michael Austin, Tona Hangen, Tana, Tanya Rands, Joanna Brooks, Jana Reese. Jana Reese, all of them. Fascinating collection of and, people who are still, sort of now today, the sort of seniors of, uh, of the LDS intellectual world. Timothy Liu, Ed Firmage. I mean, they're all still sort of in and out of Mormonism somewhat. Yeah. But but what happens during this era, because it is just a little bit, um, it's a little melancholy for me, because we are saying goodbye to whom? You listed them all. Who passes away during this time? Some yeah. of our favorites. Sterling McMurrin. So um, sad. Sam Taylor, We you mentioned Who earlier. I just adore. Old Binion. Uh, 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 oh, geez. Uh, uh, Leonard Arrington. Yes. Right? So a lot of that first generation really was passing away here. And it's, so it is fascinating to juxtapose that with this student issue. I think it's super important. Yeah. I think it's super important. And man, do I miss those first voices. Voices that I didn't meet personally, but have gotten to know through these podcasts and learning about the journal. But I think that these 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 turnovers of generations, we have to mourn them. We have to honor them. And the work that those that passed away during this time, the work was so substantial. It was so substantial, as is the work of those that are coming into the journal during the student issue. Like somehow in that dearth, it's not a dearth, I will rephrase that, but somewhere in that world of BYU and scholarship that didn't really love and embrace the journal, these students were proactive and found the journal. They found themselves in the journal. And I'm so pleased. I'm so glad. We have it a round table about Joanna Brooks, even just in our next issue. I mean, I just really am pleased that somehow that uh, the university and also just Mormonism was able to foster these voices to the point that they stayed engaged and are engaged. So in this issue, there are a number of references to Angels in America, Tony Kushner's award-winning yes. uh, famous play, including Michael Austin, who we discussed earlier, the current chairman of the board. Is, I don't know, chairman, what, what do we call him? The board of directors and for dialogue. Um, yes. And, uh, so, so that's worth referencing, too, is that's another big thing of a way that Mormonism is coming into the broader American consciousness through this play is worth uh, noting. And I just, I had to laugh about uh, Joanna Brooks's title of her essay. Of this course, issue, yes, absolutely. Prolegomena to any future Mormon studies. And there's a backstory for why I have to laugh at that, because when I was trying to publish towards a post-heterosexual Mormon theology, my original title was Prolegomena to a Post-Heterosexual Mormon Theology. And the editor then at the time, wisely perhaps, Christine Haglin, told me, Prolegomena is, you can't publish that as a title anymore. It's too blah, 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 blah. And so I just cracked up when Joanna Brooks also had a prolegomena as the, well, the beginnings of her. I'm going to ask two questions. First of all, what does prolegomena mean specifically? Because me being sort of very uh, like pedestrian, I don't know that name, but what does it mean? <laughs> It means the sort of first words about something, like the, what you need to say before to sort of say anything, you have to say this first. And uh, it's a kind of famous uh, phrase in philosophy because a number of philosophical treaties are prolegomena to blah, 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 blah. You know, um, I'm going to point out one other thing that's in the reviews in this essay, in this issue, which is our, our it's, it's Ardeen Watts. And he talks about Fiddler with a Cause and he talks about uh, music from the Rockies. Ardeen was a heralded, he was much older at this time. He's recently passed away, but he was, he, he was a staple at Sunstone and other places with music. He was a music, music 
lovers just dream. So I just have to say this issue isn't just about, about the students. It's also about those who have been and trod the path before. Yeah. We have, uh, of course, a literature issue, too, to come back to that topic as well. But the last one that I wanted to discuss, uh, on my end at least, is um, the issues around Book of Mormon and other scripture that are coming up during this time period. There's a new series that Mark Thomas, one of the associate editors, was uh, uh, organizing in these years on scripture. And the number of amazing articles that come out on LDS scripture and biblical studies are quite remarkable, in part because what Mark Thomas is doing is getting non-LDS scholars to write essays on biblical studies. And I have to say, I'm going through, now biblical studies is my field of research. I'm going through this. I'm like, why is he writing an essay? I ha- I was, I just kept coming across <laughs> all these big name, pe- people who are, you know, huge figures during their uh, during the 1990s and and beyond of course and like why are these people writing for dialogue and they weren't writing about mormon mormonism they yeah. were writing historical jesus and things about the pentateuch and it was really quite uh, remarkable and so i want to recommend that people go back and look at just you know almost every issue has uh, a, an essay in this scripture series including essays from lds scholars as well but one of those that's worth mentioning is that guy Brigham Madsen that we had discussed earlier, yes, the BYU professor who had lost his faith. He writes in the fall 1997 issue, Reflections on LDS Disbelief in Mormon in the Book of Mormon as History. Of course, the 1990s are the height of the historicity debates about the Book of Mormon. And this issue argues against Book of Mormon historicity and uses B.H. Roberts's disbelief or questioning of it as a kind of, you know, evidence that that's where all right-thinking Mormons, honest Mormons need to end up. Of course. Uh, And the article angers a lot of readers, um, as reported by the letters to the editor, who said literally, I was angered by this article. (laughs) (laughs) I love how straightforward we are. So there are three lengthy rebuttals in the summer 1998 issue, um, uh, uh, among others in, in later, uh, well, later, uh, epi- issues. You know, well. I saw this as well. And let me just mention, this is 32 years after the beginning of dialogue and, mm. and, and at the beginning, the very first issue that Gene England does as editor, he brings in scholarly voices from other religions. Mm-hmm. And I really am so excited that you are aware of the interfaith discussion that's happening between our journal and those outside of our faith. I really feel like interfaith is where it is at. I really do. And I, and I just really feel like this is a pioneer that we need, that we will come back to when it really comes back around again. Mm-hmm. So despite thinking that there wasn't going to be a lot that was really interesting in this period, or at least not knowing what to expect, I'll exactly. say that, that's probably more accurate, I ended up being quite surprised at not only the number of really important articles and issues and, of course, voices, um, but but really the quality of what was coming out Absolutely. during this time period as well. So, yeah. Anyway, those were my reactions. Any final thoughts from you? Yes. And this is my final thought. And you and I just kind of mentioned this because I was at the same point where I was like, this is past this flare point of the September Sixers and what was going on. But the truth is, is that hundreds, and I don't, I don't mean just a dozen, I mean hundreds of honest Mormon scholars of many generations just went to work. They wrote, they did their research, they published as best they could, they navigated this faith as, as well as anyone can, and I just want to, I want to just take a minute and just pause and honor that, meaning, meaning they may not be the super high profile people, but the fact that they just showed up is really, really inspiring to me. Me too. And I'm excited as we get into the new millennium in the next issue and the next episode yes. that we've got uh, to discover all this other new stuff again, sort of relive the lives that are closer to our own experiences. Um and uh, see what those have to offer in historical perspective. Well, and this this section of the journal's history, this this 1995 to 2000, is a really good launch pad 
for what's going to come next. And so I'm excited that I got to review it. So thank you, Taylor. Lots of twists and turns to yes. come for sure. For people who have been following this and seeing like, oh, we're kind of going to yeah, some, some more surprises to come. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have to talk about it then. Andy, thanks so much for your time tonight. No, Taylor, thank you too. This show is part of Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. You can listen to this podcast and all the Dialogue Podcast Network shows on a new podcast app called Lyceum, which makes it very easy to discover and listen to the great educational audio. In Lyceum, you can also support Dialogue Podcast Network by becoming a member for just $5 a month. Members will get exclusive episodes and the chance to discuss and engage the show with me and Taylor and other listeners. So go to the App Store and Google Play, download Lyceum, and become a member of the Dialogue Podcast Network today. That's Lyceum. It's L-Y-C-E-U-M.